I'm inviting you to turn today to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, Jesus, the child we met at the manger, has grown up now. He has begun in his early 30s a public ministry, uh, one in which he is teaching about the kingdom of God. His great theme, the, the passion of Jesus, is a vision of a world in which God, his character, his amazing nature informs everything. And where his will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. And, and where, where human relationships are healed, where, where resources are used beautifully, where the creation is cared for, uh, it's a glorious vision of life. And so Jesus often in his teaching is talking about this kingdom. He's not talking so much about a life after death. He's talking about the new life that happens uh, here and now and in eternity uh, when someone opens themselves up to the reign, the gracious reign of God. And so in a series of parables, Jesus teaches us about the nature of the kingdom or important things about the way the kingdom works. And this particular text is one that we don't read very often. And so I want to invite you to listen as I read aloud from Matthew 25 at the very first uh, verse. At that time, and he means at the ultimate culmination of history's purposes, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and, and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I don't know you. And then Jesus concludes the parable by saying, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Of my coming, he meant. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an incredible anticipation that leads up to Christmas. Retail outlets and operations start on that preparation process almost the day after the 25th. (laughs) They certainly gear up in the fall of every single year. Highway, civic, emergency services start laying their plans for it soon after the summer season. Children in most homes start angling toward Christmas the day after Halloween. And chances are, you too have been watching and waiting for the coming of Christmas in various ways over the course of these past weeks. You've been getting ready for it. You've been trying to figure out how to make the best of it or just survive it. I know in my house, uh, our kids are now out of the home and they're in their 20s and we just don't see them very often. So we have to really think through how are we going to use the time when they're back? How do we make the most of the experience? Maybe you've had this as a part of your life too. And then we arrive on the day, we get through it. We're exhausted from the effort of preparing for it, and the cycle begins again. We all know about the importance of readiness in our lives. We're taught about it as children. We teach our kids and our employees about it. We, we know about the, the importance of keeping watch for what is to come. From preschool onward, actually, we're, we're always being uh, encouraged to prepare. Our, we're trying to prepare our kids for the next stage of life, for the next test, for the next opportunity that, that will come their way. Preparedness is the topic du jour from the National Institutes of Health to the infectious disease folks to the local Boy Scout meeting. Preparedness is very important. Get Ready for what is coming is the watch phrase of OBGYNs. It's the, it's the constant uh, warning of the financial consultants in our life or the urban planners. The tech gurus alike are always pushing us to be considering what's coming our way in the future. And even as church leaders, I'll confess, we think a lot about it. We, we think a lot about readying ourselves for the next major holiday, for the next special program, for the next ministry need. Often in the midst of a series that we're doing here in the church, we're already three series out thinking, what's coming? How do we get ready for it? What will surround it? We're all in some measure keeping watch. Jesus had his thoughts about this topic. He had quite a bit to say about preparedness. And and the one whose first advent or coming, that's what the word advent in the Latin adventus means, it means coming. The first advent that we've worked really hard together as a community of faith to prepare for has happened. Uh, It has uh, been a a focus of ours. Um, He elevated Jesus and his teaching Um, one particular concern above all others when it came to be being prepared. Keep watch, said Jesus, because you do not know the day or the hour when I will return. 
Now I will observe that the theme of being ready for the second advent, for the second coming, the final arrival of Jesus is one that doesn't get a lot of serious airplay these days. When was the last time you heard somebody talking about that particular topic? I know it's been quite a while since I've explored it uh, with our church. And I think that's a little bit odd because truthfully, as I was thinking about this topic uh, this past week, the one who was born at Bethlehem broadcast that topic on every bandwidth he could think of. He really did. If you go back and you read the teachings of Jesus, um, he hits this theme so often. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed that I hadn't sort of noticed this and talked more about it. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus took a medical and metaphysical angle at trying to introduce the idea. He said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I think Jesus would go on to say, um, I know everybody's really concerned about uh, this virus that's out here today. I understand that's important, but don't lose a, a clear sense that that's less important than the health of your soul. Uh, rather, he says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, Jesus hits the message from a financial security approach. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then in Matthew chapter 25, later in this chapter, verse 31 and following, Jesus underlines the principle of readiness again. And this time he does it using rural and urban terms. Again, he's looking for lots of different ways of trying to get at this idea. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. In a stunning and a studied variety of images, Jesus seeks to make sure that nobody could possibly leave thinking that following him was only about what God did way back there in history or merely about good religious feelings during the holidays or merely about a slight improvement in human standards of living or about being a little nicer than we might be otherwise. Jesus was very careful in all of these different ways, in these striking images, to try and shake us by the lapels and say, wake up. Wake up, realize how, how your Father in heaven looks at life 
and how important the choices you're making are. Jesus wanted all of us to know, I think, three things in particular as I read these texts. First, he's definitely coming back. He's definitely coming back. How many of you have read The Cat in the Hat when you were kids? <laughs> right? And you, and, and you remember those little rascals that come in and, and uh, they make such trouble for the kids as if mom and dad are never coming back. They can just leave things in disarray. Jesus is saying, oh, no, no. The Lion of Judah is coming back. The great cat is returning. Secondly, Jesus is trying to say to us that when he does come back, and this is the part that's just, again, politically incorrect, personally uncomfortable, Jesus is saying here that when he comes back, some of us will head for something worse than bodily death. We may think that COVID's our biggest threat. We may think that our, that our, that our sagging flesh our love handles and all those things, our aching bones. This is the big, it's not close to the biggest threat that, that we face if we don't care for the health of our soul. And thirdly, Jesus is saying that God's deepest desire is that nobody goes to hell. That passion of Jesus, that is not, it says at one other point that he says, my father's heart is that not one should be lost. That is what he wants that everybody should come into the life of his kingdom. He wants everyone to have a future filled with forever health and eternal security and everlasting joy. Thus, Jesus says in John 3 and verse 16, it's my, it's my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? saved for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son he came down as I said on Christmas Eve he, he squeezed himself down through the chimney of time and space and emerged soot soaked into the life of an ordinary human family to show us the way to the kingdom to a life full of hope and joy and love that's what he wants for everybody that's his big, big intention. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But lest we still miss the sober truth of what's coming and the goodness of God's desires, Jesus frames the story or the truth about life in another way. And this time he does this in a form to which almost everybody in every time and place can relate. Even the folks in Hollywood would embrace this one and have in various stories. He tells a wedding story. He tells a wedding story. At that time, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now what Jesus is saying here as he says in other places, is that God's overarching desire is to draw us into a relationship with himself characterized by everlasting love. You know, so many other religions uh, cast the ultimate uh, purpose of reality in, in terms of, of, of obedience to the law or in, in, in terms of um, 
of material comforts after death. Jesus says, no, it's about entering into rapturous, permanent, enduring love. That is what life is really all about. And so he uses this image of the bride and the bridegroom, the marital relationship, as to suggest this intention. It's through our bond with Jesus that we find the final health and security and the joy that everybody seeks in life and which he wants to give us. Um, so this is the setting now. It's a wedding. It's, it's, it's the desire of the bridegroom that, that the bride be there at the wedding and enter in with him into the great life that he has planned. And at the start of the parable, all of the, there are 10 maidens in the story. Each of them is equally excited about this opportunity that they have. And all 10 of the people in the story, all 10 of these virgins, they light their lamps and they spend the night waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. Everybody starts out, yeah, I want in on this. I want to be part of what God has in mind. I want, there's not a single person if I ask people to vote personally, how many of you want to be in heaven? How many of you want to spend eternity with, in the love of God? Every hand will go up, right? Every, almost every hand will go up. And so it is in this story. But only five of them make it to the altar. Only five of them 50% of those who started out with such great intentions make it to the altar. And the difference between these two kinds of people has to do with the way they keep watch. And that's the point of the tale. That's what Jesus is trying to instruct us about here, is about keeping watch. I think Jesus is telling us that, that when you boil it down, there's sort of two kinds of people. First, there are those who really like the idea of the benefits of being married, but who can't bear the waiting. They're, they're the ones who really like the idea, conceptually speaking, of having this relationship with God, but can't bear the waiting. And then there are secondly, those who truly prepare for the bridegroom. And, and, and trust him all through the long night of waiting. Which kind of person do you think you are? Which kind of person am I? And how do we tell? How do we tell? Well, whether in a relationship with human beings or with God waiting for the full benefits that we've been promised isn't easy, is it? How many of you like deferred gratification? <laughs> it's one of the hardest things in the world. You can have that cookie, honey, just for dessert. No, it's so hard to, to wait. Jesus says the bridegroom was a long time in coming and all of the maidens became drowsy and fell asleep. And yet in a radical twist on the usual Hollywood story, it's actually how these women go to bed that makes all of the difference. Five of the virgins in this story apparently get really tired of waiting for the bridegroom to return. 
Uh, maybe they'd have been working really hard to get ready. Um, they were just worn out from all of the preparations. They were starting to feel the weight of the wedding on, on their shoulders. And, and, and like many a bride, my uh, daughter-in-law and son were married about a year ago now. Uh, and, and, I, and I could see the, the weariness of preparing. It, you, you begin to feel that in your life. Maybe the brides here had given up hope that there was really going to be a transforming relationship. And an, and end to their lives. Uh, maybe along the way, as they waited during the night, they began to doubt it. They began to wonder, "Gosh, is this really even worth waiting for?" Or maybe they become a little enamored with with somebody else at the wedding uh, preparations. Maybe they'd gotten distracted or or focused now on other kinds of things. We can't say for sure. Jesus doesn't supply the detail there. But in any case, it's clear that they no longer believed that the bridegroom, bridegroom would come or was worth the wait. How do we know that? How do we know that? How can we conclude that's the truth about them? It's because they did not bother to stock up on the lamp oil that they needed to respond to his call when he came. That's what Jesus is saying. They did not really prepare for his coming. There are, are many people who fall to sleep in this way, I think. Uh, I think, I think this is a, a frequently um, repeated pattern. I'm not talking about literal slumber here. Uh, we can fall into unconsciousness, I think, about God. Uh, we can go through a lot of our life as functional atheists, even if by our lips we pay tribute occasionally to God, we, we, we kind of fall into an unconsciousness about God's presence or his desires, or, or we fall into an unconsciousness about the day, the coming day of the final calling and return of God in different ways. Uh, sometimes we just anesthetize ourselves with a mind-numbing dose of chemicals or the adrenaline rush of constant activity. I, I think of the many times I've seen people at parties. They just have a few glasses and they kind of go to sleep early and they miss the really best part of the party. They, they kind of lose their energy for, for it uh, through self-anesthetizing. Sometimes we do this. Sometimes we get so busy, we're so rushing and rushing that we miss what God is saying to us. We may make dreaming with our eyes wide open our way of life. Um, today, I think one of the biggest challenges all of us face is, is that our minds are being steadily filled with a stream of images and news flashes and financial data and celebrity trivia and, and all of this sort of makes us dead to the world of God and the reality of the reckoning to come. Uh, we just grow very distracted. But this does not change the reality of what will happen, says Jesus. Uh, at midnight, the cry will ring out, says Jesus. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And at that particular moment, many people rem will remember that they once had light to see their way to him. They will remember in that moment, you know, I did know the way. I was told the way at one point. 
that they'll remember those days back in Sunday school as a child uh, before sleep closed in on their souls. They'll remember that they went uh, to mass or to confirmation and they were taught the things that they needed but sleep eventually closed in on their soul. They'll recall the time that they were in that crisis period and they, their heart opened up to God in a fresh way or they went to that holiday worship service where the light seemed to shine so brightly and it was so clear to them in that moment and they said, I'm gonna, it's gonna be different going forward. Next year's going to be different. Different. And they took some faltering steps towards Christ. They, 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 they leaned toward his outstretched hand for a little while, only to put their head back on the more popular pillows that cushion our way in life. Whatever oil of vital faith they once had, they, they lost. It, it, it burned away. And the cry rings out, come to the bridegroom, but the way now is too murky and too uncertain, for what was once a flickering gleam has now guttered into gloom for them. That is what happened with the first five in the story. It was not that way for the second five. Although they were also asleep, that's an interesting detail. They'd also fallen asleep. They were also tired. Jesus embraces human frailty very honestly and acceptingly. They were asleep when the bridegroom came, but the wise ones had gone to bed in a different way. Jesus said they had taken the time to stock up on the extra oil in jars along with their lamps so that when it came time to rise, they had plenty of light with which to see their way to the bridegroom. So I, I read this little detail and I think to myself, what does that mean? What, what, what am I being told here in this, in this little detail? What does this oil in jars represent? And how do I make sure I've got that stuff? How do I make sure I've got plenty of that oil? German pastor Helmut Thielke to whom I owe some of the best insights into this passage suggests that this oil signifies a life of prayerful relationship with Christ. The oil represents an ongoing life of prayerful relationship with Jesus. And when I think about that, that really makes sense because things that burn, like oil, are frequently viewed in Scripture as symbols of a life of prayerful communion with God. Uh, there's the Jewish story of the lamp that miraculously burned for eight days and gave rise to what we now call the Hanukkah tradition. In many churches, incense is burnt to represent the prayers of the saints, the prayers towards God of the saints. In many churches, you, you go in and you light a candle, right? Why? You're lighting a candle as a prayer for people that you love. In the Old Testament, Moses encounters God where? In a burning what? Bush. It's in the flame. It's in the, in the rising in a sense that, 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 that the encounter or communion with God happens. In many, many religions, there are these traditions of burning and lighting, all of this representing an effort to commune with God, a human effort to commune with God. So if that's true, this, the message of the parable becomes 
actually helpfully clear. What Jesus is saying is that it's those who are truly engaged with the bridegroom, not just superficially, not just long ago, or not just because their parents tried to arrange it, or because their grandparents said, hey, go to church, right? It's those who are truly engaged in a continuing personal quest for real communion with Christ, for daily intimacy with Jesus, it's those people who will be married forever to him when he returns. It's those who are really engaged, actively engaged, that will be married to him when he returns at last. And Jesus makes this very clear in the next verse in the text. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, and this is really the telling part, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I don't know you. How can we be married when we haven't really been engaged? Is what Jesus is saying. (laughs) That makes sense. It's those who are sharing with Christ the questions and the confessions, the temptations and the trials of the day that Jesus comes to know. It's those who are interceding for their neighbors, who are praying for for God's will to be done in their lives and on our earth. It's those who who are reading the scriptures to understand the mind of Christ and of God. It's those who, are, who, are, who, who, who pray and read scripture as if they're encountering or looking for the heart of a lover, uh, of somebody who wants to love them. It's those people who are engaged in this way who will find that they have the light needed to find their way to the dark, through the darkness or to be found by the bridegroom at the time he comes. What is more, I think, if we're truly engaged with Christ in these ways, we're going to be able to endure the long night of waiting. Oiled by prayer and this seeking for communion, our waiting is going to be different. Our sleeping is going to be different. We're going to know that when we go to bed, even if we're utterly insensible to the world, Christ is still at work. He's still structuring the times. He's still preparing the future. He's still coming closer to that ultimate day. We can go to sleep at night if we're in communion with him. And we're going to be less inclined to toss and turn in the night in fear and frustration. We're going to be able to enjoy the slumber of trust and of hope. For as the wise men knew the king was to be born, so the wise men also and wise women as well know that he will return. The king will return once more. And what a day that's going to be. As I move towards a close, let me just say what a day that day of return is going to be. Followers of Jesus believe that when the last battle with evil is done, the babe of Bethlehem, no longer wearing swaddling clothes but robed in glory, will be standing in, there in eyes gleaming with glory. We believe that billions 
of the confusing stories that confound us right now. I know that I've got a few of those in my life. We know that in that moment, all of that will converge and be resolved at his feet. We believe that all of the of the flights of the faithful, no matter how turbulent or terrorized they may have been in our vision now, we will, they will all finally uh, land safely uh, at home. We believe that there shall be a grand reconciliation and a great reunion and a glorious banquet. And because of this, we who are the bride of Christ know how to regard this stretch of the journey each of us and all of us are now on. When we're facing the difficult exams ahead, when we're facing the hard medical facts, when we're staring in the eye of a a looming business uh, or a financial crisis, when we're struggling with a child or a parent or a problem that just won't seem to come around (laughs) in the way that we would like it to, we know that somehow these realities are not actually blocks to God's good intentions for us. They are part of the great processional that leads to the place before the altar where the darkness clears and Christ says, come, my beloved, all is ready and you are mine. I pray that you will live on the strength of his promise and his vows to you in this year to come. I pray that you will trust that though you not know not the day or the hour of his coming because he has said that he will come, you'll trust he will. I pray that you will believe that when he does arrive, At last, it's going to be the defining moment that will make sense of all of your waiting, that will close out all of your wondering. It is this faith that the wise feel moved to prepare, and it is because of this faith that we also feel free to rest. So let's get our lamps ready. Let's each of us get our lamps ready for he's called us to let our light shine more and more brightly the darker it may get in this world. Let's let's stock up extra oil, more daily prayer just in case the bridegroom tarries a bit longer than we might like and as we go to sleep tonight, let's do so with greater certainty that it will be to joy for whenever we awake it will be just that much closer to the coming of our Lord. Please bow your heads with me as we come before him in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have loved us with so great a love that you would cross from heaven to earth, from eternity to time, from a painless life of perfection and pleasure into this mortal life and flesh. Not, Lord God, that we might always 
be in this condition, but that you might show us the way to life abundant and life eternal. So help us, Lord, in these days to come to keep preparing, to keep engaging with you in trust of your purposes and your timing. So hear us today as we offer ourselves afresh and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.